I need to know everything Who in the what in the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you'll be surprised at the info you Hello and welcome To JK Plus One This is episode two um, I'm going to keep on going, I think, with uh, the hello and welcome. I think it's uh, it's fair for a couple reasons. One, I think it pays homage to uh, one of the co-founders and, and the man who affectionately likes to remind me that he plucked me from obscurity. It pays homage there for, for the intro that he always does, but it also makes fun of him in, in a little bit of, uh, to, to a certain extent, and that also makes me extremely happy, so... I think I'm going to keep starting the shows off with the uh, the old hello and welcome uh, intro. The other thing you might have noticed is uh, I welcomed you to JK Plus One, which is what I've named it. And yes, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do if there's two people on the show, but I guess we'll just make a joke out of it when I have uh, when I have two guests instead of one. But I think it makes sense. It's it's me. It's someone else, and we're talking. Um, I'm sure I could have come up with something clever, uh, more clever than that, but. What the hell? Here we are. Um, I'm really excited about this episode. I, it, it was a ton of fun to 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 record. It was a fun it was a fun conversation. Um, I feel very fortunate to to have the friends that I have in this industry that are that are willing to uh, to have these conversations and um, and and I know that it's out a little bit later than I promised. I said Tuesday afternoon. It's Tuesday evening at this point, and uh, it's it's coming, but. I had to kind of clean up a few things, had some potty breaks in the middle. I'm not used to these long episodes yet, but I, I, I had to run to the uh, restroom a few times. We also had some some uh, some uh, mistakes throughout. We had to clean up the, the Skype thing jacked up a little bit in the middle. I, I This week, instead of last week with Gary, it was just all audio. And I had the idea, uh, maybe someone gave me the idea, I think, so, but I had the idea, I mean, actually I think it was Naomi Tucker that that, that said you should do it with video so that you can see the other person's face. You guys can have cues off of each other. will help the conversation. And, and she was right, except that the uh, internet wasn't being very cooperative. So I felt like why waste bandwidth with the video. And so we had to pause in the middle to cut off the video and just go straight audio. So I had, I had to kind of clean up some of those things. Um, also the important part is there is a story in this episode that I needed to make sure uh, the other party was good with. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. And uh, we got clearance from Clarence, and so that, that part of it was good. Also, um, I have a mistake that I want to correct. At one point, I talked, I prompted our guest for a, a story, and I said, can you tell us the keyed entry story? And I want to explain that because I didn't edit it in the show, so I'm going to explain it now. I was fortunate enough to have a group text with John Panagot, uh, Javier Castellano's agent, uh, racing manager. I think he might still be. I don't know if he is or not. For Lapinta Racing. Also, Jacob West, Jacob West Bloodstock and Eclipse Thoroughbreds. And then the trainer uh, of Catholic boy fame, Jonathan Thomas, who are all really good friends with our guest. I wanted to get them to give me some ideas for stories. And one of them responded, the keyed entry prank on Cordero. I'm thinking the horse that Todd Pletcher trained, which all makes sense. 
this guest worked for Todd Pletcher. I, I thought it made sense. Okay, sure. So I introduced it that way. And then when the story comes out, it's really not about the horse keyed entry. It's about, you know, your car keyless entry, keyless entry. I thought it was, I thought it was my iPhone telling me that, uh, Bob Buffet, uh, couldn't lose the Arkansas Derby or that Todd Fletcher won the, uh, you know, won the, uh, Breeders' Cup with a turf sprinter named Bulletin. So I just thought it was, uh, <laughs> that's what I thought happened. And so I'm, I'm correcting myself there. Thank you to those three fellows, JP, JT, and Jacob West for the, for the, in, for the input. It, it, it helped tremendously with the story. So without any more of me blabbering on, uh, I'm very happy to welcome my, uh, my guest and my, my, uh, the person I'm fortunate enough to have a conversation with for two hours, recent grade one winner, uh, with a filly in the apple blossom by the name of CC, uh, Pegasus winner with a horse by the name of city of light breeders cup dirt mile winner, uh, with a horse by the name of city of light, my friend, Michael McCarthy, Michael, look, we, this is where we have to start. Cause this is something that I've never even told you before, but, but it's uh, it's been a, it's been a very confusing thing for me in, in my life. So I, I, every time, admittedly, every time I call you or text you, I feel guilty kind of because I have you saved in my phone as Mike, but then I've heard like along the way that you don't really like Mike. You prefer Michael, which I, I get cause I don't really like John. I prefer Jonathan, but then to make it even more confusing, everyone, all of our mutual friends that I know refer to you as whitey. But then I've also heard that you, when you moved to California, out to California full time again, you were trying to kind of drop that. So what do you prefer to be called and where the hell did you get the nickname Whitey? I am fine being called anything as long as you know my name, uh, really. I got it from a couple of kids in my neighborhood when I went to school, uh, was kind of younger. I was probably 13, 14, three guys. I was, I think I was in eighth grade or ninth grade. A um, couple of guys who were a few years older than me started referring me to that, referring to me as Whitey, and it just kind of snowballed. It's almost like a force of nature now. It just like everybody calls me that, and I understand it's 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 much easier. But and I never really had a problem being called that. I do know one time that um, when I was working for Todd Pletcher, we were sending a filly named Smoke and Frolic out to California for the inaugural Sunshine Millions. And Mr. Campbell, Cot Campbell, God rest his soul, thought it would probably wouldn't be the best thing for someone representing Dogwood Stables to uh, be called Whitey going out there. Um, you know, he kind of wanted to put his best foot forward for Dogwood and what have you. Long story short, I go out there. Todd is fully supportive of me going out there, regardless of what my name is, what I was called. Um, we went out there. Philly wins a $750,000, which at that time was like a $750,000 allowance race. The concept was sort of short-lived, but the money was there. Um, so Philly goes out there, wins. Mr. Campbell and I kind of hit it off from there. And I think he actually sort of embraced the fact that my nickname was Whitey. So that's always how he and I, he would pick up the phone or I would call, he would call me. And that was what he always would start off with. Whitey? Like that. So if he was good to call me Whitey, everybody else is good to call me Whitey. I'm fine with it. That's funny. 
All right, so now now I got I got to tell uh, the story, and I don't know if you remember it, but I got to tell the story of the first day that we had like officially met. I mean, I we had, I think I had maybe crossed paths with you once or twice, but um, I was just like a racing fan. You probably just you didn't know who I was. I knew who you were just from you know reading DRF and carrying on, and so. I came out to Del Mar with uh, our friend Jake Ballas, who who had a, a cult with you, uh, the Uncle Mo cult, and obviously uh, I'm going to go blank on the name now. Uh, uh, Mighty, Mighty Mo. Mo, Mighty Mo. So he comes out there, and we're, we're hanging out. We come over uh, in in the morning to uh, just check out your operation and see all your big horses, and and uh, it was like the first time I ever saw you. Uh, jog one on the road right there, which I've seen other trainers do since, but you were the, that was the first time I'd ever seen you jog them on the road there. And, um, and that's just to, to kind of, uh, just to be quick, if you don't know this is to, to kind of check their soundness. You can see it better on a concrete road if they're off rather than on the, on the dirt or wherever. And you had this big monstrous horse where I can't really tell if a horse is big or small, but I could tell that that one was big. And Jake asked you, you know, who's that? And then you told the story. It's a quality road, big horse. We bought him for this, that, whatever. And uh, he said he's in today. And you just didn't seem very confident. Um, and knowing you now, I, when you're confident, they run good. And, and so I would have even doubled down on the decision that we made that day to not use City of Light in our picks in the Del Mar race. So fast forward, we're in the grandstand. And City of Light runs off the screen and wins like, like the good horse he turned out to be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Larry Zapp, no, well, I, I'm friends with Larry Zapp. In this moment, I wasn't. But Larry Zapp is gloating. And he's like, I knew that horse was going to win. I, I, you know, he's like, you know, doing that deal, which is a pet peeve of mine anyways. And he's doing that. And I was very upset because we lost about $1,500, $2,000 between us, whatever it might be. And I, and I, and I told Larry, I said, did did you bet? And he said, no, no, I didn't bet. And then I, I proceeded (laughs) to tell him the abbreviation was STFU. And I did it very aggressively. And there was kind of a separation of us and it took us about two or three months to even say hi to each other again. So that's pretty much your fault. Why did you not think the big horse was going to run well? And why did he run off the screen? I was so sure that he would win when we took him to Los Alamitos and he ran, I'm not going to say he ran poorly, but he ran so far below my expectations that day was drawn down inside. He's a big horse for guys that don't play Los Alamitos or don't watch Los Alamitos thoroughbred during the day. The configuration of the racetrack is a little something. It almost makes like an kind of an, not a dog leg, but a, a slight right-hand turn. The track veers to the right and then cuts to the left for the far turn. Um, and uh, sometimes horses have a hard time navigating that. A big horse like that, who's was very, very green and needed a couple of races to kind of really put it together. Uh, Gary said he had a hard time. He was kind of lost out there navigating the first turn. Um and then he swung out into the middle of the racetrack, coming through the quarter pole, ducked down to the fence. It just, everything about it was ugly um, for a horse that was like three to five that day. I'm glad we were running at Los Alamitos and not on a packed crowd racetrack like at Saratoga or Del Mar or what have you, because I'd have been booed right out of town. Gary Stevens rode him that day, jumped off was not real complimentary didn't said he didn't think he was the horse that he thought he was in the morning fast forward we go to del mar 
we had had a series of five or six works. And during that time, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, owners of City of Light, vacation down in La Jolla every summer and go to the races every day. Mr. Warren's wife, Suzanne, had said to me one day at the races, if we don't have horses running in the Breeders' Cup, we don't want to do this anymore. So we need to get some wins. And I had this pit in my stomach <laughs> down in Del Mar all summer long. I thought to myself, I'm going to get fired before I really get a chance to show everybody how good this horse is. Uh, so we had had a, a handful of decent works down there. I ran one horse for the Warrens' second week of the meet, a horse named the Lieutenant, who ran uh, ran off of a was coming off of a 16-month layoff, sprinting, ran a very even, like, fifth or sixth. Fast forward, closing two weeks of the meet, the lieutenant runs back, stretching out, wins by three or four. A couple days later, you guys are in town, obviously. As you had just explained to everybody, he's out there jogging on the road. And I had probably sort of left no one's stone unturned. He had trained pretty hard down there the last few weeks. I almost felt like it was more important for me to win while they were there than to win or any kind of campaign or put together any campaign for them later on in the in the fall or what have you. So I made sure that he I just thought he was as good as he could possibly be uh, that day at Del Mar physically. I didn't know mentally where he was going to be. Had the light come on. We hadn't done anything different with him. And. Lo and behold, that afternoon, they sprung the latch. It took him one or two jumps to get to the lead, and the rest was over. I think he ran the fastest or co-fastest six furlongs of the meet that summer, which was like 109 and 1. Uh, track was a little on the deeper side. And that kind of got everything sort of going from there. I will say this, that when he won that day, the first thing that popped into my mind was the Malibu, which is the last grade one of the year for three-year-olds at Santa Anita, um, December 26th. How we got there was a little bit frustrating, but that horse had certainly, he had confirmed my beliefs that he was a nice horse that day. Um, I made bad tout. I'm probably my own worst critic at times. I'm not a very good gambler, um, and I hate being wrong for my friends. So I would rather tell them, no good. I'd rather tell them nothing at all, you know, proceed with caution, then you do whatever you think is right. I'll just tell you how the horse is doing. You take it from there. Um, but yeah, I, I could see, I, I think I buried more than a few people that day. <laughs> he, so, so you talk about your friends and this is a good transition to some more city of light talk, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to do with these, this podcast is, is, is have people tell fun stories. It's like we're sitting at the bar and I've loved some of the stories you've shared. And some of these stories we'll talk about today, I've, I've heard before. Uh, I want you to share them. But I, I sent a text message to a, a group of guys that I know you're really close with. Um, and I knew that the first time I saw you guys hang out because you guys, were, you guys are like, you guys go in on each other. I mean, there, if you didn't know you were all best friends, I would think that there's times that you guys hate each other. Um, but John Panagot, obviously Javier Castellano's agent, uh, Jonathan Thomas from Catholic Boy fame, and uh, and Jacob West, uh, Eclipse Thoroughbreds, uh, Magnum Moon. Uh, Magnum Moon's the horse that almost made him famous. He told he told his wife, "This horse is going to make me famous." He won the Arkansas Derby 
it was unfortunate not to get to participate, you know, or run as well as they would have thought in the Kentucky Derby. And unfortunately the horse, you know, had a catastrophic injury and the lows went ahead and, and maybe someday when you have him on the podcast, they, he can tell you what they went through to go ahead and save Magna moon. Um, was a heck of an effort to try to, 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 to save his life uh, over a matter of months, you know, but yeah, that's the horse that almost made him famous. <laughs> almost. That's perfect. But they, so I asked him, I said, Hey, you guys got any good, uh, any good McCarthy stories? I'm, and, and, uh, we had about a, 40 texts and 29 of them are not safe for this podcast or anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, my daughter's being, my daughter's in there on quarantine doing, doing, doing her math homework in the next room. Okay. So we'll, we'll save some of the other ones. This will be the PG version of this podcast. Yeah. But one of the common themes that, that kept coming up that, and I, I remember cause I was there. It was, it was one of the times, one of the first times we got to hang out an ex- extended period of time, but it has to do with city of light. Um, but all of them had something to say about how confident you were about City of Light going into the Breeders' Cup mile. I think Jonathan Thomas said you were like Babe Ruth pointing to the upper deck all week. Uh, Catalina Cruiser walked by, and you uh, were very clear about what was going to happen in the race at it, as it pertained to Catalina Cruiser. And um, and that's no offense to, to John Sadler or the horse, but just you, how much you believed in yours. What, totally. What, what was it? about that horse that day and and subsequently also you had that confidence with him in the Pegasus I remember and frankly you had that confidence this weekend with Cece and the Apple Blossom what was it about City of Light or in general that gives you that confidence that they're going to run that 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 good of a race I just had loved the way the horse had trained ever since he won the Malibu he had kind of like matured he had been beaten two times he broke finally broke his maiden at Del Mar so he's Beaten his first start at Los Alamitos. He wins convincingly at Del Mar. We come back and we run him in an A other than against older horses at Santa Anita. He's narrowly beaten. We bring him back Breeders' Cup Friday at Del Mar, and he's beaten again. And I could tell in the tone of Mr. Warren's voice he wasn't very happy. Fast forward, we go to the Malibu. Drayden Van Dyke is, is, is available to ride him. I had had a hard time figuring out what I was going to do rider-wise, going back and forth with Mr. Warren and what have you. We had scheduled another rider um, to possibly come and work him the week before the Malibu. And for some reason, uh, I really never got the whole answer. Alarm clock, blues, bit of a hangover. I'm not exactly sure what, but he never showed up to come and work him. I saw Drayden Van Dyke sitting at Clocker's Corner one morning, asked him if he was available for, you know, or asked his agent and him if they were available to ride a horse in the Malibu. They said they were open, and the rest is history. But the horse had gotten so good, was learning how to win, was learning how to put races together, was learning how to relax. You know, all the things that come with seasoning, um, this horse was picking it up as fast as a horse could possibly do it. And, you know, when you're around them every day, you start, you get in tune with them. You get, you get dialed in with them. You kind of know where they're at. Um, good horses will tout themselves right off the bat. Um, and he was doing that all the time. He was a remarkably talented workhorse in the morning. He could go as fast in the morning as horses go in the afternoon. Um, and I had seen 
little, little doses of that in his training. So, and I started to see it a lot more come summer of his three or of his four-year-old year. Um, the Oakland Park handicap in the spring was kind of like the light bulb came on and I thought, wow, we've got something here that, you know, of course it's won two grade one sprinting. Now he's won a grade two going a mile and an eighth, first time stretching out around two turns, beating the eventual Eclipse Award winner and Accelerate. I kind of was of two minds of what to do, whether to go ahead and kind of get him ready to go to New York for the Met Mile or try and maybe do something like the Santa Anita Gold Cup and run him a mile and a quarter, which would have drastically changed what path I go with him uh, for the rest of the year. I decided to stick around and try the Santa Anita Gold Cup going a mile and a quarter. The racetrack at Santa Anita during that summer had gotten very deep and very loose. And he was a big horse, you know, just shy of 1,300 pounds. He was 17 hands tall. A lot of horse to be, you know, that's a, that's a lot of muscle, a lot of, a lot of force hitting, hitting, hitting the ground. Um, and I just thought that he would be better off hearing his feet rattle on a racetrack that was tighter. Um, horses didn't get to, into as deep, um, especially a horse like him. So when we got to Churchill Downs, knowing what that racetrack is like, and when he gets a little bit of moisture in it, it tightens up. It gets very hard and very fast. It's also a very safe racetrack. But you'll see a lot of times on Kentucky Oaks Day where the surface is absolutely drenched. They're splashing water. Fast forward 24 hours later on Derby Day, and those guys have worked all night long to have the track in as good a shape as possible. And, you know, horses run miles in 33 and change that afternoon. Six furlongs in 108 and change, that kind of stuff. Um, and I didn't think the Breeders' Cup would be any different. We had had a little rain earlier in the week. The racetrack was great. The weather was great. And my horse seemed to flourish back there. He loved that racetrack. He could hear his feet rattle. And I just had this suspicion that he was peaking. Um, he got beat earlier in the summer uh, at Saratoga. I just decided to go into the Breeders' Cup without a prep race, give the horse plenty of time to get over it, get him good, and he got good. And I'll tell you what, when he got to Churchill, he was like a different horse. It was cooler weather, a racetrack he liked, and I was so confident of the way he was training and the way he was doing. I gave a little thought to running back in the Classic there was a stud deal that was done at the time. Mr. Warren had kind of, he had a preference to run in the classic, but ultimately say, he said, it's up to me, whatever you'd like to do. And I said, look, let's just take the path of least resistance here. It'll be a very good race, the Breeders' Cup dirt mile. But um, I'm confident he would get a mile and a quarter. I'm extremely confident that he'll get the mile um, on that racetrack. You know, it'll be a speed favoring racetrack. He'll like it. Um, anyways, we get drawn in the one hole Breeders' Cup draw. I wasn't ecstatic about drawing the one hole, especially knowing that Catalina Cruiser had drawn way outside. But leave it to Javier Castellano. He had worked the horse. He flew in, worked the horse the weekend before the Breeders' Cup. And we had a four or five word conversation and that was all i needed to hear anyone who was there that week and saw that horse work before the breeders cup 
knew that he had would certainly take to that racetrack and he was on top of his game. We were fortunate enough that day we caught a flyer and he was gone. And I don't think there is a horse on the day that would have beat him in any race. Um, crazy thing is I had the option to run him in the sprint, the dirt mile, or the classic. You know, um, It's not often you get horses that are able to do that. And I'm not saying he would have won the sprint. I'm not saying he would have won the classic. But I'm saying he would have he, he was so versatile. There wasn't much he couldn't do, you know. Now, one of the things I've always been, well, not always, but I've become the most impressed with is, and I, and I, and I mean this in a, in a nice way about other trainers, but I have found that horse players get frustrated when trainers and or riders uh, do things that seem ridiculous to us on paper decisions and trips and instructions and all these different things. Um, and obviously I, I think trainers know more about their horses. There's things that they may know that we don't know. So I get that. But one of the things I've been impressed with is the three biggest races I've seen you, uh, since we've been friends participate in the breeders cup mile, the Pegasus and the apple blossom, all three of those races, you told me exactly how you saw the race unfolding. And it's exactly what happened. You told me in the breeders cup mile, and I don't even know if you remember this, I called to say, what do you think about sending from the rail? And you said, I told Javier, he better be on his belly. And that's yeah. exactly what happened. And he won city of yeah. light. You said in the peg in the Pegasus, he's going to break and he's going to flop outside and sit off the speed. And it's exactly what happened. And then in the apple blossom, you said that CC was going to pop away from there and either sit off of Serengeti Empress if she makes the lead or tuck in behind the speeds. And it's exactly what happened. It, it, did you just get lucky those three days or do you take a lot of time to try to figure that out? I try not to put too much into it. Uh, you guys, obviously handicapping, dive into it a lot more than I do. Um, you guys are trying to pull winners out of the woodwork. I just want to know who the controlling speed is, who the stalking speed is, and who the closers are. I have enough faith in knowing my own horse that I know where he wants to be or she wants to be and how she wants to be ridden and how I would like them ridden. Um, you know, it's the Mike Tyson deal. You know, everything, you don't always go in and do it with a game plan until you get punched in the face, you know. Um, Breeders' Cup day, you're drawn down on the fence. You have no choice but to go. It's Breeders' Cup. No one's taking back. Everybody's sending. They're taking it to you. Um, I really felt this, and I felt it all along. I almost was like jealous of a horse like Catalina Cruiser. He was getting so much hype. He won the San Diego. I think he beat four or five horses that day. Came back, won again. Uh, and I thought, look, the hype was justified. He was running decent numbers. He was, the way he was doing it was pretty flashy. He himself was a pretty big and pretty imposing horse. Um, I just didn't think he was beating much. You know, and he was doing it in his own backyard. We had been able to ship a couple of times. My horse seemed to do well whenever we shipped him out of town. That was easy. You just go. It's Breeders' Cup. You go. Um, hope your horse is doing as well as he's telling you he's doing, and you go. I was extremely, extremely confident in my horse. I had been thinking about that race against that horse for a long time. If there was anything I was going to accomplish that year, with that horse, it was beat, you know, it was win that race, prove to everybody that my horse, you know, 
was. You can I say guess, it. Better. You can say yeah. it. <laughs> I, I, just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to let everyone know who was the better horse. That's all. Strangely enough, my rider, Drayden Van Dyke, had taken off of the City of Light to go ahead and ride Catalina Cruiser. And that, I almost took that personally. I know it's business. You shouldn't. But I took it personally. I begged those guys, please don't do this. They did it. I'm happy with the decision I made. I hope their decision, happy with the decision they made. You know, um, that's racing. That's the way it goes. In the Pegasus, I knew that was going to happen. Chad had been saying that that horse needed to go ahead and get to the lead. And that's what they were going to do. They were going to put him on the lead. I thought we were the type of horse we would break cleanly enough be able to go ahead and track him, and it worked out perfectly. Chad's horse went. He got to the fence. Javier eased back off of him, got outside of him by about a half of a length, three-quarters of a length around the first turn. And when they turned up the backside, if you watch the head-on, Javier kind of takes City of Light out about two paths to stay away from Chad's horse. City of Light throws his ears forward, and you can tell he's just like, it was like that, uh, I watched this thing on ESPN the other night, Catholics versus the convicts, and they had a guy on there, Pat Eilers, and Pat Eilers has this great line, and they were talking about Lou Holtz and Jimmy Johnson, and he makes this reference to when they're leaving the locker room about these guys acting professionally, no fighting, what have you. You play the game. Anyone that fights will be off of this team. Um, so you go out there, you play 30 minutes of hard football, and then you save Jimmy Johnson's ass for me. And this guy, Pat Eilers, he says that, you know, that was it. Game over. Game over. You know, it was done. And when that horse did that and I saw him put his ears up, I just kind of crossed my arms. And there was – it was an odd feeling. It just, I knew that that was it. It was done. Um, and I looked up a couple of times and I saw accelerate coming and I saw a couple other horses coming, but I knew if that horse hit the quarter pole and if he was as good as he had trained that week and worked over the racetrack seven days before there was no catching him. One of those fortunate situations, everything worked out well for us in the apple blossom, same type of deal. Uh, wasn't happy to be parked way outside. Fortunately, the horses that we needed to beat were drawn right inside of us. The whole complexion of the race changed within a quarter of a mile. You know, Serengeti Empress was not able to get the lead. Cookie Dough, I was told by someone who really pays attention, likes to get out. Joe was stuck outside. Joel went ahead and, and rode aggressively and put all his candy on the lead. And we were able to tuck in. We were like three lengths behind them, turning up the backside. And the next pack of horses was three or four lengths back behind us. So we were just kind of sitting there cruising, you know. Those three horses kind of took themselves out of it. At the three-eighths pole, it looked like the one filly had been hit in the head. I've never seen a horse go back. Well, I've had a few horses go back just as fast as her. But she looked like she hit the ejector button, you know. All these candy went ahead and went on with it. And Serengeti Empress and Joe, they hung around for a little while and Victor was kind of cruising, and it, it just worked out wonderfully. Um, now, had the camera angle been flip-flop or had Ollie's Candy got her nose down at the wire, I wouldn't be as jovial as I am today. But 
sometimes these things work out, sometimes they don't. I sent a former employer of mine, we had exchanged some texts back the other day, and told him I was worried about the 14 post position. He sent, sent me a text back that was very simple. Good post, bad trips. Bad post, good trips. He was right. That was all it took. Yeah, you know what's funny is I bet you John Sadler's crossing you off his uh, Christmas list at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just and it, you know it was a, it was a freaky deal, freaky kind of thing. Look, between Accelerate and, and Catalina Cruiser, to be able to kind of run against those horses at multiple distance distances multiple times, and you know uh, it's Accelerate one city of light one in the Santa Anita gold cup and in the Oakland park handicap. And then, so we're, you know, kind of duking it out in the Pegasus and then Catalina cruiser, we get our opportunity to run against them and kind of show what we're made of. And it's just one of those things that worked out. It was a kind of a, it was a very good ride, a very fun ride to be on. So you were obviously around a lot of good horses and, and we can, you know, we'll, we'll probably touch on the Todd thing at some point as we're rolling through here, but there was one filly that uh, I remember you told me a really good story about rags to riches. Obviously she was probably really special to you. And, uh, and, and as a big filly, which, which CC now is in that category of big fillies and, uh, that, that you're excited about doing really special things. I wanted you to tell everyone the story about rags to riches. Uh, when I don't remember what race it was, but where you were worried she wasn't eating, but then, but she still was doing some things that made you feel like she was going to run well. Yeah, that really taught me as much. One horse taught me as much about horses uh, in a five-month span from December to April. One horse, I learned as much with one horse as I could have learned with a barn full of 40. And it was really just, there is an air of about good horses. There is something about good horses that they know they're good just stay out of the way. You know, you try really not to, for me, I just tried not to screw anything up. Um, I had rags to riches when I worked for Todd Pletcher at Churchill Downs the summer of her two-year-old year um, and got her beat first time out, long story short. So in her debut, she gets left in the starting gate. She's ridden by Brees Blanc that afternoon. A lot of riders were out of town to go to ride at Arlington Park, or I can't remember what else may have been starting up. Uh, but guys were 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 not in town. It's just one of those things that I don't think I I was so wanting to run her and 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 like win with her that we probably should have worked her. We probably should have worked her from the gate one more time before we ran her. I got a little greedy, got a little ahead of myself. I thought she was good enough to win anyways. Unfortunately, the day we did run her, she got left in the starting gate, came with a big rush, and I think she might have run fourth that day. I can't remember if it was third or fourth. But Todd had mentioned to me, you know, the way you were talking about this, Philly, there weren't three horses on the planet that could beat her. Somehow you found three in the same race. You know, why don't you wrap her up and send her on back here to New York? Unfortunately, she had been injured out of that race, went back to the farm, went back to Ashford, came back to us in California when they had the synthetic racetrack at Hollywood Park. Long story short, 
in three short races, she turns out to be the best three-year-old filly in the country, if not the best three-year-old in the country that, that year. Um, she broke her maiden so impressively. We ran her back in the Lost Virginis, and in the last Lost Virginis, Garrett Gomez rode her. She was like six wide into the first turn, five wide into the second turn, and I think one by eight, maybe nine lengths going away. In the weeks leading up to the Santa Anita Derby, she had come back, trained well, ate well. She started to get a little bit sassy, a little bit difficult to kind of handle in her stall, slightly territorial, and just a little bit difficult to deal with from time to time. After the Lost Virginis, you know, this Philly's reputation is growing and puts up a performance like that. All eyes are on you. She's at Hollywood Park. Next schedule start is the Sanita Oaks. She trains forwardly for the Sanita Oaks. Her last work at Hollywood before the Sanita Oaks, something didn't seem 100% right. She worked a very slow 5 eights, 104 and 2 with Garrett Gomez. He said everything was perfect. I thought something had to be wrong. No way a filly like that could work like that in the morning. Um, just didn't seem right. During the week, she had seemed like she wasn't quite herself. Her appetite wasn't as, as robust as he had. She was extremely difficult in her stall. Everything was just seemed to bother her that week. Noises were bothering her. Um, I don't know. It was. I got maybe a little bit more wrapped up into it than I should. I was probably paying so much attention to her that I was making myself more nervous than she was. I believe it was on Thursday of that week. We couldn't even get in her stall to hook up her feed tub. So we just took the feed tub, dropped it in the corner, and let her have at it. You know, didn't even snap it up, just threw it in the corner, let her eat, you know, as she pleased. She didn't eat at all. Friday morning, went out and trained, and she was just sort of okay that day, um, that morning. Didn't train good, not great. Gentleman who was riding her at the time, Justin Curran, felt that she was trained fine, acting fine. You know, no need to worry. But when they're not, usually when they're not eating, when horses aren't eating, something's not right, you know. Um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it with this filly, what it was. Friday afternoon, I got myself worked up into such a lather, you know, the night before she's going to run. Um, I thought to myself, do I need to call Todd here and tell him this filly just maybe we shouldn't run. Maybe she shouldn't be doing, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, doing this, regrouping, waiting for a race at Keeneland or what have you. Got her out that afternoon, and we walk all the horses in the afternoon for 10 or 15 minutes in the shed row just to kind of let them stretch their legs. And at Hollywood Park, there were quite a few pigeons in the shed row. And she had been walking around and walking around, and I had been watching her um, just kind of trying to look for a re reason. Is there something not right? Is there a reason why we need to run? don't need to run tomorrow? What have you. So after a few minutes of walking around, she had come walking up the shed row. There was a pigeon four or five feet right in front of her, and she had taken one step, 
two steps and the third step, whap, she stepped right on top. Like she struck this pigeon, stepped right on top of it. I looked at everybody, said, everybody ready for this? Want to go get a beer before we win tomorrow? Like it was like, like I knew right then at that moment when she did that, I was like, all right, this is what I was expecting to see. This is the rags to riches that I know here. She was incredibly talented, incredibly quirky at times and incredibly mean. And as a broodmare, they had quite a few instances with her, um, you know, at full in time with her being difficult to the handlers around her when she was foaling or just after she had fold and things like that. Um, she was put on this earth to be a racehorse. She has been a, what you would call a subpar broodmare. Um, none of the, none of her offspring have really made any noise on the racetrack at all, but her Zenyatta, those types like that, that's what they are put on this planet to do. They are put on here there to be racehorses, you know, and they were the best of their generations, obviously, you know, um, Zenyatta, same thing. The verdict is still out on her. She's only had a handful of foals. None of them have really made much of an impact, but that Philly that day, I remember that vividly. It was a week that was just a little bit stressful because you don't want to get something like that beat. Um, I had a lot going on in my personal life at the time and it was just, uh, yeah, it was a week that still is very clear in my mind. I can see it all right now. And yeah, she was amazing. Um, obviously I don't need to tell you what happened after that wins the Kentucky Oaks and then five weeks later wins the Belmont. So nice to be around a horse like that. You were obviously with her at Belmont, right? When when she won the uh, the Belmont. No, I was at Churchill Downs. We had had a couple runners that afternoon at Churchill, and so I was able to go ahead and kick my feet up in the office and just kind of take it all in, take the Belmont in by myself, and uh, it was as good as being there. You know, I, I it was almost like an out of body experience watching her run and win that day. Um, you know, her and Curlin threw down for three eighths of a mile. It was awesome. Were you, are you a rooter? Were you rooting? I, I don't. I don't know if I've been around you to see you root or not. I'm not a rooter, really. <laughs> I'm not a rooter. I am. I, um, I might get a little excited, but I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't start shouting, screaming, whooping, anything like that. But um, I just kind of was like, I was sitting in my chair, feet up on the desk, and. When they got to the quarter pole, I put my feet on the ground and I had to stand up and watch that. You know, I was I was rooting that day. I was rooting that day for sure. Did you think she was going to win that race? I thought that a mile and a half is certainly something that she wanted to do. Curlin was so good. I thought that was something that he could do. Um, she, again, for the Belmont, the Saturday or Sunday before had worked very slow, um, uncharacteristically slow, or at least uncharacteristic for what you would think would be going into the third leg of the triple crown. And I do remember speaking to Todd about it. And he said, hell, if she can win the San Diego Oaks off of a one Oh four and three, five eights, why can't she do, do it going into the Belmont off of a, 
almost literally, it might have even been slower. She might have worked five eighths even slower for the Belmont than she did for the San Diego Hoops. Um, I thought she was by far the best horse I had ever seen, or laid my hands on, I shouldn't say. I thought she could win that day. I, and I guess I should say I thought she would win, yes. All right, so obviously, you know, and like I said, the Todd thing, I feel like you probably talked about that a million times in interviews, and so we'll we'll, we'll save it until yes. we really have to talk about it if it's something comes up. But key to entry, I, I, I got to ask you about the prank you did on Cordero. So spending time around Angel Cordero, some of the most fond moments I have of working for Todd Fletcher are spent with Angel in the summer of 2004. He was bringing us breakfast to the barn and he always, you would carry around the keyless entry with him. Um, never had any keys, but always had this keyless entry and he'd leave it around the office or he'd leave it on the dry erase board anywhere. He could just find it and go. Um, obviously he was getting on horses all the time. Didn't want to have it in his pocket. So one morning after returning from buying us breakfast, he drove his car all the way up in front of the office at Saratoga, went into the office, delivered breakfast. And when he was coming out, before he came out, I grabbed the keyless entry out of his car. The car was still running. He got in the car. We said goodbye to him. I had told Todd earlier in the morning what I was going to do. And he said, yeah, go for it. Do it. So as Angel gets in his car, he puts his car in reverse and he starts backing out. Our barn at Saratoga is on the Oklahoma side and it's only one sided and it's about 30 stalls long, which is probably 200 feet, give or take, something like that. Um, And as he is backing out, I hit the keyless remote, the alarm button, the panic button. And the alarm starts going off as he's backing up. So he slams on the brakes and he stops the car and he starts looking around and everything's fine. And we wave to him and he kind of peers out of the, out of the driver's side window. And he says, sorry about that. And he goes another 30 feet and I hit the panic button again. And this time, it keeps on going off. He slams on the brakes, puts the car in park, and now he's looking all over for the keyless entry and he can't find it inside the car. I stop the alarm, stop the panic button. He puts the car in reverse again. He goes about another 40 feet. And this time I hit the panic button a third time. And now I don't turn the panic button off. Todd, myself, a couple other people were up there. I can't remember Maggie Sweet, who now runs Todd's office. Uh, a few of the riders. Seth Benzel was an assistant for Todd at the time. He happened to be there. The alarm's going off. It's 30 seconds. It's 40 seconds. He gets the phone. He starts calling his son, Tommy, on the phone. He starts shouting to Tommy, get over here. What kind of car did you sell me? His, car was, his son was selling cars at the time. What kind of cards you sell me? Can you hear this? My alarm's going off. I don't know why it's going off. He opens the hood of the car. It's going off. He looks underneath the hood. 
Now he's wanting to get like a hammer. Anybody have a hammer? He's wanting to beat up the inside of the car. Todd Casley walks over to him and he says, Angel, what's going on? You're starting to scare my horses. He's screaming. He's shouting in Spanish. His eyes are starting to well up. I hit the panic button again and it stops the car. And now it turns off. The alarm turns off. Todd says to him, Angel, I'm not sure what's going on, man, but I can't have you doing this. And, you know, this is not good. Make sure it doesn't happen again. He said, well, it's off. It's fine. Maybe it's something wrong with the electrical. I don't know, but it's good for right now. I'm going to get out of here. Todd says, all right, Angel, not a big deal. Just make sure it doesn't happen again. He gets in the car, puts the car in reverse. He goes about 15 feet. and Todd kind of looks at me and kind of nods at me. I hit the panic button again. He slams the car in park. Now he comes out. He's throwing his helmet at the car. He's shouting at the car in Spanish. And I take the keyless remote. I point it at the thing. I turn the panic button off. And he, in that accent, his Latin American accent, he starts shouting, Michael, I can't believe you would do that to me. And we are crying. We were I was crying real tears. I was getting this. I was having stomach cramps. I was laughing so hard. Todd is got a very good sense of humor as well. He was la Everybody was in on this prank except for him. And we never let him live that down. I don't think anybody else could have. The theatrics that were involved with him, if anyone knows him, getting upset and and. He's a high-strung guy himself, um, and he doesn't like being embarrassed, and no one likes him being embarrassed, but this was just one of those things that was beyond his control. Um, probably one of the funniest things I've ever witnessed in my life. I mean, I was crying real dear. Oh, my gosh. I'm crying right now. One of, my, yeah. one, of the, one of the greatest moments of my adult life. This summer, I'm in Saratoga, and my phone rings, and, and I've gotten to become really friendly with Angel because of, of Jake Ballas, who's got, you know, they're like, family basically mm -hmm. and uh angel texts me and is like hey man you want to come over for dinner and i was like he's like post times at six o'clock which i thought was funny and so i'm thinking wow okay I'll, yeah i'll go to dinner I mean, there must be a bunch of people going over there or whatever and i go over there and it's just me and george weaver and it was the most fun it was just so much fun to be like it, for him to be the legend that he is and be this this sweet nice humble man it's it's bizarre to me yeah. You know, yeah. I just, it's, 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 it's just bizarre. Um, you mentioned Saratoga and I'm the whole time you're telling that story. I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I was picturing all of that happening, happening from George's barn, which is right there by Todd's. And I feel like I was watching all of that happen from, from George's barn back by the Oklahoma. Obviously you're in California now. It's where your family is. It's where you're going to stay as long as racing stays in California. What, what, if you could, like, if you could pick your family up and move them to the summer at Saratoga, would you do that every summer? Or, or do you like Del Mar and you're fine, just need somewhere to go in the summer? I like the locale of Del Mar. Um, everybody likes it. You know, in California, it's just it's just so easy. Now with no Hollywood Park, um, you're basically nine months, eight and a half months at Santa Anita sprinkle in a little bit of Los Alamitos, you know, in the summer and in the winter. Everybody is so into their racing 
at Saratoga. And I think a lot of times everybody is so into being seen at Del Mar in the turf club opening day, that type of thing. Um, Racing is very competitive at Del Mar. There's great races, great horses show up down there. You know, Saratoga, there's just something about it. There's a, you know, you've got the Travers, the Whitney, um, so many great races up there. The town embraces racing. It's really what makes the town come alive during the summer. As a racing enthusiast, there is no place like Saratoga. Um, from a lifestyle perspective, I have to give the I have to give the nod to Del Mar. Doesn't rain in Del Mar, as you know, in Saratoga, it can rain and rain awfully hard. Um, working in an environment like that isn't really fun during the summer, especially when there's no shed rows to be had at Saratoga. Everybody's outside, so everybody's soaked when it does happen. There's just a different element. It's a totally different buzz, uh, both places. Now, your time at Saratoga, I'm assuming you were there uh, when, when Uncle Mo debuted. And, uh, you know, he was almost even money, which I, I'm shocked by the way, especially by the way he ran. Did, did, you, did you know he was going to run that way? And were, were you telling everyone at Saratoga and at dinner the night before that he couldn't lose? Or what, what was your involvement when it came to, to Uncle Mo and his debut? At that stage, I was not in Saratoga. I was at Churchill Downs, um, but I did know of Uncle Mo. Um, obviously, just from hearing the guys talk about him, you know, just checking in with the assistant and, you know, who was good, what two-year-olds were good, what we had going on, um, and just asking Todd about the runners for the day and what have you. And he had mentioned him on a couple of occasions. So I knew about him. I had never laid eyes on him until he came to Churchill Downs for the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Um, but I knew he was good, yes. Did you know he was going to win the Juvenile like he did? Just by listening to Todd talk about him, yes. Um, there was just a sureness in Todd's voice and in his demeanor when he spoke of that horse. And then when we finally got him on the racetrack at Churchill and my foreman at the time, Horacio De Paz, who's now a trainer in, in the Mid-Atlantic region, um, was getting on the horse and Todd had given him instructions as to what the horse was like, how he would work when he did work. Bah, 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 bah. I remember him working uncharacteristically slow for the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. And I think that had Todd a little bit perplexed and a little bit worried. And Horacio saying to Todd, horse was great, thought he was super. If, if anything, maybe he was a bit too relaxed out there, you know? Um, so it made for a little bit of an anxious moment. Just, I think Todd was really expecting him to show some brilliance in the morning there at Churchill Downs, like he had at Belmont Park and like he had at Saratoga. But come race day afternoon, everybody saw the brilliance. It was there. It was, um, you know, uh, there was never any doubt at any time that, that horse was, you know, was not going to win. Right. You, you talk about your time at Churchill and this is a, this is a, a, uh, JT, JP, and JW special. 
there's a horse that, that flipped over and, and like ended up in a, you ended up in the office. It, do you know the story I'm talking about? Yes. We had a horse that won the Lexington. His name was Theory. He was owned by Windstar. The following year, we had a horse named King Uther that was owned by Team Valor. Uh, and he was a smallish, I should say, smaller type horse. Um, and was very green and just seemed like he the light bulb hadn't gone on yet was green in all aspects not only was he green on the racetrack he was green in the barn um again my foreman horacio de paz had had him in his hands in the shed row we would check all the horses in the shed row jog them up the shed row before we would take them out to train i had just come out of the office and into the shed row and King Uther had walked around with Horacio around the corner and had stopped right in front of the office. And I can't remember if he had bit Horacio or kind of tried to kind of lunge over the top of him. Something might have spooked him. I cannot remember. But I remember Horacio reprimanding him and getting the horse's attention and backing him up as you would do, just kind of applying some pressure over his nose with the chain to get him to back up, to get him to kind of like respect the distance, respect the barrier between horse and human, you know? Um, so he backed him up a little bit. He backed up two steps. And Horacio had asked him to come forward and pulled him forward a little bit with the shank, and he came forward. And the next time he did it, he anticipated Horacio putting some pressure on the shank, and the horse started backing himself up. And with each step, he started backing up a little bit quicker. And I said to Horacio, don't you think you want to stop him? And he said, I'm not touching him. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stop him. And he had backed himself up about three feet farther than I would have been comfortable with. And he got his hind feet in the office. And when I say small, I mean, he was probably he looked like a yearling really he was that small um and when he got his hind feet in the office it's hard to explain but the office sits in the corner and seven or eight feet away across the walkway is the first stall and there's a walkway around the barn so as he's walking around the barn and he stops right in front of the office there's probably only from when he stops there's probably only six or seven feet between where he is in the shed row and where the office door is. And inside the office, we had this kind of slick, I don't know what tile floor. I can't even remember what, what the name of it is now, but when he backed up and when he got his two hind feet in there, the floor was so slick when he went to push off, his hind feet came out from underneath him and he legs kind of buckled and he was sitting like a dog literally with his hind end inside the office and his legs outside the office on the dirt. So he tries to push himself up again and he can't get his feet up and he can't get his footing properly. And he struggles and 
I'm nervous now because here's a horse that's half in the office, half out of the office. One of my exercise riders was actually in looking at the corkboard to see the horses that we had in for the day and for the week and what have you, and was behind my desk. And I said to Horacio, just stop, just stop, just drop the shank and let him get up on his own. He dropped the shank, and as he tried to get up on his own, King Uther, the horse, when he pushed back with his, when he pushed off of his front end and tried to get his hind end underneath him again, he like pushed himself back, and somehow he had pushed himself back about another three feet, and now he was totally inside the office. And it was, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what to do. I was like, I never seen anything like this before here's this 300 pound oak desk one of my riders is behind the oak desk here's an 800 pound animal inside the office with him who's on his side he can't get up the door at churchill the office door at churchill was steel so he's banging off of the door he's banging off of the desk the door bangs into the TV that's up on a bracket on the wall. He hits the bracket so hard, the TV comes down. So now things are falling off of the walls. Pictures are coming off the walls. My exercise, is, exercise rider is screaming. He's trying to kick the portable air conditioning unit off of the window to escape out the back window. Somebody help me. Please help me. I don't want to die. This horse is going nuts in there. It was definitely an emergency at the time. I look back on it now, we can all laugh, but you had to kind of be there. I mean, it was, the horse literally had enough smarts and enough wits about him just to kind of stop and stay there. We were able to kind of go ahead and coerce him out of the office. Afterwards, we had to kind of push him and pull him, and he was more than willing to oblige. But it was... We had an audience of about 50 or 60 pe people around us over this four or five minutes of this whole interaction. Um, it was pretty wild. It was, yeah, it oh, was good. It goodness. was, the, the, I would have preferred, these stories that are like, and I'm a horrible storyteller. I wish you guys could be there to see these kind of things because it was, yeah. Oh. The Cordero story is my favorite, probably my favorite racetrack story of all time. And he was lucky enough. He got me back. Fast forward about seven, eight years. He got me back when I went to uh, my last two years of working for Todd. I went to Belmont Park. And after the races one night, he said, hey, buddy, why don't we take a ride into the city and go have dinner? You pick a restaurant, any restaurant you want. I said, all right. You like Chinese food? Yeah, oh, I love Chinese food. I said, how about we go to this place, Mr. Chow's? It's really famous and it's really good. They've got one in California. I'll take you there. That's great. Let's go. So we invited a couple people. Um, it's after the race is on a Thursday or Friday night. We were leaving right from the barn. And he says to me, let's drive. I said, I'm not driving into town. I don't want to drive into the city on a Thursday night or whatever it was. Yeah, come on, let's drive. I like driving in the city. You ever driven in the city? I said, no, I've never driven in the city because... Anyone in their right mind would just hop on the train and you'll be in the city in a half hour. If traffic's bad, we won't be in the city for two hours. 
Uh, it's all right. Where are you going to go? I like spending time with you. We'll have a good time. So, well, I'm hungry. Let's go. Okay. Jump in the car, get on the freeway. Can't remember which tunnel or which bridge we're on. I said, Angel, I'm starving. Traffic's terrible. We've got, it says here on this GPS, we've got another 45 minutes till we get to the restaurant. And he says, you like granola? I said, um, yeah, I like granola. He said, you want some granola? I said, sure, give me some granola. He said, okay, here, I got some granola. And he opens up the center console of his Lincoln. Not the same Lincoln he was driving five or six years earlier at Saratoga, but a new Lincoln. And he hands me this granola. So it's in a small kind of plastic serving three or four ounce type of a deal. I open it up. I start eating the granola. I start eating more of the granola. I eat all the granola. It takes me about 10 minutes to eat all the granola. So he says, you got any granola? Give me some of that granola. I said, I ate it. He said, you did what? I said, I ate it. I said, I'm starving. He, he said, you ate all that granola? And his accent that he has is this, this great accent. Michael, buddy, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, okay, I'm just checking. He never told me it was medicinal grade granola. <laughs> oh, my God. I was fine. We got to, we got, I was actually, by the time we got to the restaurant, I was really relaxed. Didn't care how long it took us. I was in a great mood. We order some food. I'm not feeling well during dinner. I'm starting to get hot. Noises are starting to kind of like, things just aren't jiving. Something's not right. Um, it was almost like, what's the movie old school when the guy shoots the tranquilizer dart into his neck? <laughs> Yeah, Will Ferrell and uh, that guy from uh, American Pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, when he, yeah, like Angel's talking to me, and his voice is starting to get real slow and real deep, and my hands are starting to feel like like real gummy and rubbery, and my face is starting to get funny. And we go through dinner and have a couple glasses of wine, and on the drive home. Nothing is really making sense, and I'm kind of out of sorts, and I don't really realize it. The next morning was still, I was still in the same shape I was at 9 o'clock that night. It was horrible. It was, for a guy that doesn't really do anything recreational like that, it was, it was like 12 hours that I didn't know if I was ever coming out of. Um, so that's 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 me and edibles that's that was the last of any kind of anything edible um mind-altering edible i'd ever tried after that but um Uh, yeah yeah, funny it was funny but getting back to like like i said it's hard to decide to, to decipher where i'd rather be saratoga or del mar i'm from california i'm actually from ohio but i've lived in california all my adult life I like the California lifestyle. I had, you know, make no bones about that. Never had, even when I spent nearly 12 years on the East Coast working for Todd. Um, and California always was home for me. So there was never any doubt in my mind that I was coming back here. And now that I'm here and actually having to think about possibly going to Saratoga at some time or at some point because of the way things are going out here in California, 
it's actually it's actually pretty scary, you know. No, of course. What now? I mean, look. I mean, you 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 mentioned it, and and you know, obviously, we hope that that isn't the case, and and uh, you know, there's obviously been the world has bigger problems than 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 the ones that PETA can drum up at this point. But where would you go if if that were to happen? And and obviously, obviously, you know, you've got the family ties. You'd have to work through that, but where if if you got to pick your place to go to kind of be your home base your your from would you go to new york would you go to florida would you go to to uh kentucky where, where would you where would you go what like what, what place would you like to to kind of be year round if you weren't in california i love saratoga in the spring and summer i love kentucky you know i love i love saratoga in the summer i love kentucky in the spring i used to look forward to getting to to, to keeneland you know every april Churchill Downs during Derby Week is, you know, one of the greatest spectacles, not only in horse racing, but in sport, I think. Um, I don't think there's any place better to train a racehorse during the winter or nearly year round than California. I love being a Payson Park. Um, Miami, the lifestyle, uh, the lifestyle in Florida is great. But it's not easy, you know. You're either training at Palm Meadows, or you're training at Palm Beach Down, or you're training at Payson Park, and you're running at Gulfstream. Um, so you're getting pulled a lot of different ways. The Eastern Circuit is a difficult and demanding one. Saratoga during the summer, Belmont in the fall, Belmont in the spring, you know, Florida in the winter if you're lucky, or Aqueduct in the winter if you're not so lucky and not that there's anything wrong with aqueduct i actually enjoyed being there but um it's dirt racing only you know um i don't know if if hopefully nothing ha ever happens here in california that's that's a very fine line but i would have to think that the next logical step would be to go to kentucky um the way things are shaping up there with the purses that they've got at, at Churchill Downs and then the quality of racing they have at Keeneland, it's hard to pass something like that up. And then, you know, they're trying to make their own circuit there um, with Ellis Park and, you know, pumping up the purses there. And then obviously Turfway Park, they're removing the racetrack at the end of the year and putting in a tapita surface. Um, so they're doing, you know, obviously their best to upgrade there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, Would, I love being at Belmont Park. I don't like leaving Belmont Park. I'm just Long Island. I, I don't know. I think it's a lot easier to go from the West Coast, from the East Coast to the West Coast than it is to be out here for any length of, or period of time on the West Coast and then go to back to a place like New York, back to a place Long Island. It's yeah. um, a little bit of culture shock. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it would be probably Kentucky and see where that takes me. Although I, I love the racing in New York, Lexington or Louisville. Where would you, if you, where would you buy a house? I'm a Louisville guy. Are I'm you? A Louisville guy. Oh yeah. man. I'm, I'm Lexington full meal deal. I'm a, I'm a Louisville guy. Uh, I like the cards, Louisville Cardinals, Cardinals. Um, where did you, Patino where did you eat? Where, 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 was your, where, your, where are your food spots in Louisville? Uh, Kareem Deeves 
it's uh, or what is what's it called now? I can't remember what it's called now. Um, it's a deli now. It literally it's just a sandwich counter. I would go there and eat there four times a week. Three dollars <laughs> for a sandwich. Three dollars and fifty cents for a sandwich. Um, I didn't really have Frankfurt Avenue Beer Depot. Uh, it's a barbecue spot down from where I lived. Um, What's the restaurant? My favorite, my favorite, Jack Fry's is probably like one of my favorite restaurants of all time. That's was my go-to spot. Um, outside of that, it just, you know, I was, I, I was pretty easy, but I, I, it was always Louisville for me. I really enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed the people there. As I said, I was a Louisville Cardinal fan. Patina was coaching uh, basketball there at the time. Charlie Strong was the head football coach. They had great basketball, great football. College World Series would be played right across the street from Churchill Downs. Um, so, you know, there were plenty of options to choose from depending on what season it was. So great sports town, even there's no, even though there's no professional sports, great music town um, and a lot of stuff to do. During the summer when racing would shift to Saratoga, you got the occasional opportunity to play golf from time to time. Valhalla, all kinds of nice family clubs around there and stuff like that. So, yeah, Lexington's great. I love Keeneland, but it's fluable for me. Now, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, something that I've always and I look and my livelihood doesn't depend on it, and I find it annoying. So I know you find it annoying, but um, trainer percentage, right? I I I think that so many owners. Um, I think a lot of owners, and I've had to tell my friend uh, Jake this a couple times, I think a lot, and not him, but about people he's had to deal with. I think a lot of owners, they know enough to get them in trouble. They know enough to be able to look in the form and know that Javier Castellano is 30% and IRAD's 40, so they want IRAD. And and they know enough to know that uh, Michael McCarthy is 12% at, at Del Mar this summer. And so I'm going to go to Bob, who's 48%. If Michael McCarthy was 12% at Del Mar this summer, he would have been doing cartwheels. I think Michael McCarthy was more like, um, what's half of 12? Six? Yeah. (laughs) 6% this summer at Del Mar. Well, it's fair, but you're 33, you're 33% this year. Yeah. Did you, did you know that you you know, your earnings, your $22,000, per start in earnings, which is better than Brad Cox, Steve Asnison, Chad Brown, Todd Pletcher, and Bill Mott. Well, I'm not going <laughs> to blow my own horn, but the last two races I've won have been 400 and 600,000 respectively. That and they've been with the same horn. <laughs> that helps quite a bit. That helps quite a bit. I think they've been, yeah, they've been, I think what, I think I've won a, I won two races. I've won four races like the last two days of racing or something like that um but one of the last horses i ran was cc in the beholder and that was four hundred thousand. and then fast forward five weeks later to the apple blossom and that pot was supposed to be a million dollars and then unfortunately with the pandemic and the closing uh, you know uh of public businesses the race went from being a million dollars to six hundred thousand dollars, which still is nothing to sniff about. Um, now, so you, yeah, do you? So that that helps. Do you? I know, like I know, you have a, a lot of owners that um, 
you know, I know your relationship with Eclipse and Aaron Wellman and, and Jacob Wett, like they're not sweating you for a percentage because they're intelligent guys that understand the game. But, and I don't want to throw any of your other owners under the bus, but do you, do you get fearful that your percentage is dropping and it's going to affect your business? Do you look at it? Do you care? Or how do you handle your percentage in times like you mentioned at, at Del Mar this summer where things weren't going great? Um, I do. I mean, I think every trainer does, you know, um, especially when you're running, you know, multiple horses a week, you're running six, seven, eight, nine, sometimes 10 horses a week. Yeah. You, obviously you pay a lot of attention to it. You know, 30 years ago, guys never put any, anything stat like that in the form. There was no, you know, the information that's out there now is, is so abundant and so plentiful that, you know, there's a stat for everything, but I'm sure there are stats out there from, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I'm sure Charlie Whittingham went on a bad run every once, once in a while. I'm sure John Veach went on a bad run, Laz Barrera, all these kind of guys. They go through, you know, everybody goes through a hot and a cold streak. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it bothers me when, when, when I see a point zero, you know, point zero eight or what have you, you know, you want to always bat. I always consider a guy that bats 20%, a lifetime 20% winner and a trainer that wins it. A, a trainer that wins a 20% lifetime is like a 300 hitter in baseball. You know, um, is he hall of fame worthy? Maybe not, but he's solid. You know, he's going to get the job done and people are going to know what his name are. And if I win one out of every five starts, that's great. If I can win, you know, get on a little bit of a roll and win more than that. Like you said, I think our win percentage is 33% right now. We've had a couple of wonderful things happen uh, with some of those wins. I think this year, I think we've won 18 or 19 races, and I think six of them have come in in fields of six horses or less, you know. Um, so the field size in California has taken a hit. Guys have shipped out of town and gone to, you know, whether it be the fairgrounds or whether it be Oakland Park or what have you, but field size has taken a hit in California. Um, I've run a lot of horses up in Northern California, which I've taken a, I guess you could say I've taken a base on balls and a few of them, you know, gone for the free spot on the bingo card and run a horse or two that was probably good enough to win down, down here in Southern California, sent them up there uh, just to get a W up there. So if that's if if that's considered padding your stats, that's fine with me. You know, um, I know it's a lot more enjoyable. Like when you said, when you're winning at thirty one percent, than when you're winning at three percent, like I did at Del Mar. Right. Uh, and like, and look, and percentage to me is like a, it's a weird stat, and I think it's kind of a a misleading stat because, um, and w- and we'll get to a more uh, controversial conversation in a few about percentage. But uh, my friend Marshall Graham pointed out. I don't know if you saw it. He tweeted, but. When Steve Asmussen had his, which he snapped, he won like three races after everyone started talking yeah. about it and one day back to back. But Steve had this run where he was like one for 48. But within yeah. that run, 20 of those horses ran faster buyers than their previous race, which to me, I think what people were insinuating, if I'm being frank, is that after the indictment, everyone is looking for whose percentage is dropping because yeah. they want to accuse people of cheating. But to me, that completely 
makes me think that Steve didn't stop winning because those guys got cheat caught, caught cheating allegedly. He stopped winning because he got unlucky, and a lot of horses were shipping into Oaklawn. There are fourteen horse fields because everywhere else is closed, and he just had some unluck. He didn't have Ricardo for two weeks, which is like his main guy, and yep. so his horses were still actually improving though. And and so I, I think that there's there's more to percentage and that's what annoys me so much about it. And like I said, my like my livelihood isn't even tied to it. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, last year, uh, May, June, July, whatever months it was here, we were closed down. Um, we had all kinds of things going on. We had a rash of bad weather. We had a rash of incidents with horses, pulling up on the racetrack and having, uh, you know, just some bad luck with some freak accidents out here and stuff like that. Hence we were closed for three weeks. You know, some paranoia starts to creep into your head when you've got people protesting outside and news cameras are out at Clocker's Corner every day. And there's just, the vibe and the feel around Santa Anita last year, last summer was difficult. Um, I decided I had some horses that didn't seem like they fit in at the time. The best thing to do some, whether they were, you know, late maturing two-year-olds horses that weren't doing as good as they could have um, horses that I didn't think would Del Mar would really be the right move for them. I turned them out. I stopped on them. So what I was left with, you know, I ran, didn't run any good. Some of them ran okay, didn't run good enough to win. We had a couple of, you're going to get it every time you run 100 horses. You could probably make a case at six, seven, eight, maybe even 10 of those 100 that you run. They get, you know, questionable trips, unlucky rides. Rider makes a wrong decision here or there. Or someone beats a guy to a hole or, you know, that kind of stuff. But had a bad summer. It wasn't the first bad summer I've ever had. Um, hell, when I first started on my own, it took me six months to win a race. So, you know, is it the last time I'm going to go through a, 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 a three month span where I'm not going to do any good? I think I won over in, I think I won over the course of four months. I think I won five races done. You just take your beatings like a man and, and move on, you know, um, keep on showing up, keep on working. Some things are going to turn and, you know, starting in November, things started to turn. I started sending a bunch of horses up North to run up there, <clears throat> pad my percentage a little bit, although it's, you're not really padding it when you're going from about 7% to, to 15%, but you know, you're doing what you got to do to win. And that's what this game is about. And I remember Ron Anderson, um, always saying, never go through a period where you don't win, do whatever you need to do. You know, he was talking about, I think it was Gary Stevens or Jerry Bailey and just about jockeys in general, but he said, never go through a period where you don't win. You know, I went through a period where I didn't win. It started bothering me emotionally. It started bothering me and my family because I wasn't right, but you know, you look in the form every day and a guy sees that he's 6%, 7%, it wears on you, you know? Um, and you just kind of, 
you just kind of go with the punches. Yeah, um, and I think it does for gamblers too, you know. I think gamblers do the same deal. You yeah. look down and you're like, dude, I've lost X amount of money in the last four days and like what the hell am I doing? And then I think it starts I think it starts impacting your decision making, which is even more problematic. But I think that the difference I think for me is as a as a horse player I don't really intimately know what other people are doing. I don't know if other people are winning. So, and, and so their, their success doesn't put a lot of pressure on me, but you know, I think this is a good opportunity to, to, to touch base on like, um, and I'll speak frankly, uh, it, with the word in large, all caps, allegedly, but like these guys that win at these obnoxious percentages, I feel like that puts a lot more pressure on people like you who are, who are doing it the right way. And, and look, if, and I don't want to seem like some idiot. If you're cheating, you're not good at it. Uh, if you want it 7% at any point, you know? And, and yeah. so, yeah. Um, so I, it's not like I'm trying to, to paint you with this innocent brush, but the, the stats speak for themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that? And, and, and the frustrations and the pressures that it puts on you, you got to think that guys who win at 30, 40% clips in these runs that have been accused of doing bad things, get good horses and get horses that you could have gotten. And also you have to explain to your owners why you're 7% or 4% and they're 36%. I mean, how did you feel about all that stuff that went down earlier this year? And, and how do you, I mean, how do you feel about the cheaters in general? It's right there. You open up the form, you see horses that are claimed for 12, five for 16 for 20 off of an outfit that is a lifetime 15, 16, 20% outfit. And some of these guys take these horses in, in seven or eight races. They're not only, they have not only gone from say being claimed for 12, five winning for 25, winning non three twenty five, winning for 40 then coming back. And now they're busting out their first level condition and running through their conditions, and now they're winning stakes and stuff like that. I don't know how those guys do it. I guess I, I guess we I guess we all do now. You know, um, things that we saw you know earlier this year. And hey, look, I claimed a horse off of a guy for fifty thousand, and I won a Grade One with him. But his numbers were basically the same. You know what I mean? The right. horse was running decent numbers. I may have tweaked a couple of things or done a few things differently than the guy that I claimed him off was doing when I claimed Ohio. But by and large, the horse came with a big reputation, had run in some good races, had run some decent numbers. We got him healthy. He got good. But come on, man. Like these guys claiming these horses and running them up the ladder and stuff like that, that you know what that stuff is all about. Right. Now, now, obviously, um, I would imagine as a trainer, you know, uh, we, we were talking, I was talking to Jake Ballas actually earlier today, and we were talking about how, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, are the guys that used to run against them, obviously they're, they're happy because now they can win purses and all that stuff, but they probably like to have the security blanket of being able to drop a horse in for 10 and knowing that, that they're going to take, you know, that these guys are going to take them because, they, you know, it's, it's almost like the value of those horses has dropped now that that market is not out there for these guys to pick these horses up and then turn them into ATM machines. 
Um, do you think there's anything to that, or do you think that everyone's happy that they're gone? I think in today's climate, the microscope that's on racing, the cleaner the better. You know, it's unfortunate what happened, and it's unfortunate that you know some good people were dragged through this. And I don't, I mean, good people as as in unsuspecting owners that didn't know about the kind of things that were going on. There's been a few guys that have been active on social media that have said, hey, good for these guys getting busted. Look, they got enough. They got they got bigger problems to deal with. I don't need to get on social media and say, hey, good. I'm, you know, I'm glad yeah, this course, guy's out or what have you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't be like that. You know what? Don't. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, are you, how do you feel about these guys that were winning at these high percentages that essentially uh, to the, to the unintelligent owner were making you look bad from, from your, your, you know, your cold streaks or your slumps. And why are you, why are you 7% and so-and-so is 38% and winning grade one? Yeah. You know, I can't, I probably couldn't give you a great reason for it. I have a routine that I go through. I have a couple of methods and a couple of things that I do that I'm a product of my environment. I worked for a guy who was very routine based for a long time. There was a routine, there was a method to everything. There was a way we approach, you know, training horses, doing things, preparing horses to run, bringing horses back off of layoffs, getting horses ready for particular races. It's easy for me to go ahead and say, oh, yeah, I just didn't have a very good group of horses this year, a very good group of young horses. I think it's pretty obvious. I didn't win a two-year-old race until, like, October of this year. Um, the summer previous at Del Mar, I think I won six or seven two-year-old races. A lot of it I blame on myself. I started to get a little disenchanted with what was going on, you know, uh, I'm not going to say that I, I wasn't dialed in because I'm always dialed in and I'm always trying, but I, mean, I think, I think you told me you were scared to train horses. Yeah, really. I was, I mean, we had a whole bunch of stuff going on out here in California. You know, you've got animal activists, you're sitting down to have dinner with your family, you know, or your friends. And all of a sudden you're listening over to the TV in the background and another horse, you know, dies at Santa Anita today and stuff like that. And, I don't want to hear that stuff. I don't want to have to answer the questions. You know, I don't know. I can't answer for anybody but myself. You know, I pay attention to what's going on, but I feel like it's more important for me to pay attention to me than to pay attention with this guy that's doing over here or what this guy's doing or, Hey, I heard this guy does this or, or all these different things. You know what? I feel like I have a system that works. It works for me. I felt it look worked for the guy that I learned from. Todd Pletcher makes twenty-eight million or twenty-something million in purses every year, depending on the year. He's obviously doing a lot more right than he's doing wrong. And what he does right is show up and work every day. So if I show up and I work every day and keep on sticking to what I know, things are going to change for me. I also think there's security in numbers in what we do. A guy that's got 15 horses doesn't stand much of a chance in California against a guy that's got 115 horses. It's just the way it is. Um, you know, um, you're going to get more opportunities. The larger you are, the more opportunities you're going to get. 
you're not afraid to go ahead and kind of run a horse down a guy's throat. You know what I mean? Take an edge by maybe trying to take a free base on balls. Horse might be worth that you think is worth 40,000 running them for 25 in a spot where he looks like he could be vulnerable, you know, all kinds of things like that. There's all kinds of angles, but as far as guys doing things that I don't think are on the up and up and winning at a large percentage, well, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You know, if you think you're gaining something from doing that, be my guest, man. But when it all comes down, Hey, that's, you chose to do that kind of stuff. You know, that's the way you chose to sort of run your business. Right. You mentioned business and, and I think that it's, I think it's a, I think it's a fair question. Uh, not obviously asking for specifics, but you talked about how, 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 you know, just kind of the rough year that you had last year. Um, You've it was a rough year. It was a rough. It, it's my year started off great. I was coming right. out of a Brewerstock win. I had thirty horses. I ran five horses, you know, from out of a stable of thirty. Five of them ran in the Breeders' Cup in November, um, which is remarkable. Was, by the way, yeah, it was great. It was great. Horses got good at the right time. We had some nice horses, uh, and it was a great experience. You know, I, my first Breeders' Cup runner was a, in the in the uh, juvenile Phillies. I had a Philly run third in there for, you know, my first owner, Aaron Wellman, who eclipsed. They got me started. His partner in that horse was a family friend. That was a big deal. Liam the Charmer uh, was a horse that had a year off, came back, won the Charlie Winningham, was able to go ahead and, you know, show up in the Breeders' Cup. City of Light was wonderful. Um, you know, it was a Axelrod ran in the Breeders' Cup Classic. I bought him for twenty five thousand as a yearling. Um, so the end, the year ended great, and twenty nineteen didn't start off that bad. Heck, we won a Pegasus. It's kind of hard to, you know, that was in January. We won a Grade One with Ohio a few months after that. Kind, you know, just, you know, it was a, it was. Start off as a good year. Then all of a sudden, we have all these racing gets canceled. We have a bunch of breakdowns. I have a bunch of get horses get hurt. You know, it's 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 the game cycles around, you know. Right. Um, and in the last calendar year, you have to think. I mean, I don't know the exact number. I, I probably could have done the math, but everyone knows JK does math fails. I would imagine you've lost, I don't know, 30, 40 racing days in the last calendar year with the yes. stuff that went on last year. Where you're yes. at this year, it's probably more than that, really. I mean, how? Yeah. I mean, obviously, the City of Light Breeders' Cup, the City of Light Pegasus, the uh, you know the Ohio Grade One, like that. That's probably cushioning your business. But I mean, without those horses, uh, just you know, thinking about other trainers who might not have been as fortunate as you have been to have those big those big scores, those big pops. I mean, guys got to have they have to be in trouble right now. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, if you're not able to compete in the afternoon, your overhead, your payroll, your workman's comp, that stuff builds up, you know. Trainer charges 10%, you know, off of a win and then, you know, barn stake usually and things like that. But that 10% they charge usually probably comes out to about 7% after it's all said and done. You know, you get done paying the, the, as I said, 
your overhead, which is your workman's comp, your payroll, your feed men, your blacksmith, your tax shop, um, and overtime, and and just you know, there, there's a lot that goes into it. So to to miss out on on a month of racing, thirty calendar days of racing, maybe even more, it's a huge deal to smaller guys. You know, I don't know how much more of it we can handle. How much more of it we can take out here in the state of California going through things like this. Heck, even in New York, the way, you know, you're paying a prevailing wage in New York, the labor in New York. It doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. It's an expensive game, whether you own or whether you train. Well, that's for sure. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's been one of the things I've, I've, you know, I've, I've thought about is like, man, it's, it's gotta be tougher. Like, you know, for, for, for people that, that aren't winning these big races and aren't, um, you know, aren't doing what, what, uh, what you were fortunate enough to do this weekend, which brings up another point, you know, uh, not that this is like one of our bonding, uh, topics, but, uh, I'm an asthmatic. And, and so I've been, dude, I've been laying low. I'm not, I'm not jacking around. And I just, you know, I just, I know what it's like. I've had asthma attacks in my life growing up and, and, and not being able to breathe and going to the hospital and taking your inhaler and it's not working. It's a, it's nerve wracking. Um, people in my life know that I'm going to be an asshole if I forgot my inhaler. If I leave mm-hmm. my inhaler at home and I go somewhere, don't talk to me about it. Um, yeah. Like straight up, I still hate my sister-in-law to this day. And <laughs> I met her 15 years ago. And I left my inhaler and she was annoyingly asking me questions over and over about it. And I started to kind of have a panic attack. And I was like, dude, yeah. I know I forgot it. I get that. Well, why would you forget? Why would you leave something like that? <laughs> so, yeah. and I still, I mean, I hate her for lots of other reasons, but, uh, <laughs> but, but that was where it all started. How I cannot believe you got on an airplane and flew to Oakland for CC's race. I mean, I know why you did it but I still can't believe you did it. Um, how was that whole Corona flight, Corona travel, Corona Oak lawn, Corona with a man who has asthma? How was that whole experience? Cause like I said, we, we share that in common. We're both asthmatic. I kind of waited till the very last minute. A lot of these racetracks, well, I should I say a lot of these racetracks, the uh, the racetracks that are operating now have protocols that you have to abide by to run at them. We were allowed to send CC to run at Oaklawn, but we were not allowed to send anybody that was not a tr- the trainer, myself, or my assistant trainer. So my feeling was, you know what, I could send one of my assistants and myself back there and the two of us could get the job done and it being a grade one this Philly being worth a lot of money um I just felt like I needed to be there was I happy about going no I wasn't given the situation we're in now um and the scenarios that are unfolding and now that we know that people that are asthmatic and have bronchial issues are more susceptible to coronavirus, it was always in the front of my mind. So when I got on the plane on Tuesday, I flew with her on Tech Sutton on the on the 
you know, on the charter, um, the horse plane. I was bundled up. I had glasses on. I had masks. I had a ski cap on. I mean, I didn't know whether I was traveling or if I was getting ready to rob a bank. You know, you're I in just the back. You're up. in the back of the plane. I was in the back of the plane with the horses. Yes. And I've heard it's cold yeah. up there when you're on the when you're not on a commercial flight. It was probably in the high twenties. I mean, it was. It was. I thought I was getting a little bit of frostbite for a minute um, on my feet. It was very cold, and it's always like that. But you're flying in a cargo plane, you're allowed to fly higher and faster. So what takes you usually three and a half hours to get to Little Rock takes you, you know, less than three type of a deal. Um, so I, will, I felt okay about flying there because it was myself. And I think there were three other people or four other people on the plane, plus the pilot and the co-pilot. And we were all kind of spread out apart from each other. Coming back afterwards and having to go through Little Rock Airport, I was a little, well, I wasn't a little nervous. I was a lot nervous. Little Rock Airport isn't a very big airport. It'd be probably the equivalent of what we have here in California to an airport like Burbank. There weren't 50 people in the airport on Sunday morning. Now, when I flew to Dallas-Fort Worth, as big as that airport is, there weren't a thousand people in that airport. It was a ghost town. Um, both of my flights coming back, my flight from Little Rock to Dallas-Fort Worth probably had 15 people on the plane and from Dallas-Fort Worth to Burbank in a DC-8 or 737, whatever type of plane it was, there weren't 20 people on that flight. There was one person every third or fourth row. Same thing. I had the masks on, didn't speak to anybody. Um, social distancing, you know, standing away from everybody waiting to get on the flight and what have you. But I got off the plane and I went and got, uh, I'm doing a self quarantine right now, or I have to quarantine. That's part of the deal at Santa Anita. So I am quarantining myself and just kind of hanging out. Um, it is a scary time. Um, it's not something to be taken lightly. I was Yes, nervous, real nervous about flying, real nervous about traveling. Oof, man, I, I, I can, I can only imagine. Yeah, I, I, uh, I flew to L.A. Probably like, to me, my brain works on when the NBA canceled is when I realize like, oh dang, not yeah. that I didn't know that it was a thing, but when the yeah. NBA canceled is when I was like, and then March Madness, I was like, okay, this is, this is real, and this is going to be impactful. I flew to LA like the day or two before that. So I was I obviously that. aware. Yep. Yeah. And, and I remember being on the airplane and like, dude was coughing like three rows back. I'm like, come on, man. And I, I'm not a germaphobe, but I don't touch things unnecessarily in yeah. life in general. And mm -hmm. so I, I can only imagine trying to get on an airplane right now. I mean, I'm a mess when I, when I go pick up takeout food. Yeah, no, it, uh, it was, it was, I mean, it was, yeah, it was scary. It was scary. Then, you know, when we got to hot springs, you know, it's really not a, you know, it's not really a hot spot as far as the coronavirus goes. So outside of restaurants being closed and bars being closed and no patrons, 
restrictions at the racetrack and the casino at Oakland being closed, it's pretty much business as usual. You know, um, you see some people wearing masks. Everyone on the backside at Oakland Park was wearing a mask or on the front side was wearing a mask. So it was nice. Um, and they did a very good job at Oakland. Who's barn? Stuff. What barn were you in? They don't have numbered barns. I shipped into the Lawyer Ron barn, which is a brand new barn, and it's all out on its own. It's the last, it's like the last barn on the property um, over near the three-eighths or the half-mile pole. So it was nice and quiet over there. There weren't too many people, um, and it was great. Um, just not a lot of foot traffic and not a lot of people coming by, so it was quiet over there. Did you, um, and I, and, and I saw you, I, uh, my first like heavy barn experience. I mean, I hung out with you at, at Churchill during Breeders' Cup for when, when City of Light won the Dirt Mile. But then I also hung out quite a bit when you were, well, not as much as you did, but uh, Pegasus. And when yeah. you're there, when you, when you travel to go with your horses for big races, like it, it's not like you're going, you're going for a race, you're going to do some hanging out and then you're going to do some work stuff when you have to. You, I mean, you were there. And I think. Yeah. I remember, and I almost made this joke on the Fox show when you were uh, doing the interview with Lafitte and Gary, but they didn't throw it to me. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, is uh, is CeCe going to win? I mean, I wasn't there to give her an apple because everyone knows yeah. I gave City of Light an apple, which is probably the reason why yes. he won the Pegasus. But, I mean, you were there, huh? You were just hanging out. You had nothing else to do, right? Yeah, and I like being there. In Miami for the Pegasus, I knew that horse was getting ready to leave and to head off to Lane's End, so I wanted to spend some time around him. Breeders' Cup, you're there. You've got five horses. It's opening week of the meet at Churchill Downs. I've got my friends all around me. You know, Jonathan Thomas was there with Catholic Boys, stable, you know, one barn over. Todd was stable across the way. I've got friends there that are working like yourself, you know. Um, I've got, you know, guys that are living there and stuff like that but i just like being at work whether i don't need to be at the races i only go to the races when i have a horse in but i like being at the barn does it give you a sense of comfort as well just to like know that you're you know yes definitely gives me a sense of actually it's almost it's like a sense of normalcy to me this quarantine is not real fun right now um I love my wife. I love my daughter, but I like spending time at the barn. You know, um, I've got a very good crew. I'm blessed to have guys that have been with me for a long time. My assistant's very good. He knows what I like. My riders all know uh, the routine. My grooms are all dialed in. Um, so it, I don't want to say it runs itself, but there's a system in place and there's an organization and there's a method to, w to the way we go about things. So I'm confident that everything is fine, whether I'm there or I'm not, but I like being there. I like getting up in the morning. I like getting to the barn. I like, just like anybody, I get up, I read my periodical. I like to read the TDN, the blood horse, the form. Then I like to go outside and start checking my horses. And the best part of my day is when I touch, put my hand on my first horse, you know, that's when, that's what I'm used to. That's what I like to do. You know, you talked about, uh, you talked about, um, your assistants and your grooms and your, and all that. Your, 
What what category would I be in for that one time that I scooped the the feed? You asked me to go scoop the feed, and I scooped the feed, and I brought a scoop of feed for City of Light. Would I be an assistant trainer for that, or is that is that not quite qualified? You would be. You'd be more important than you know. You've got a valid social security number and good paperwork. You'd be. You'd be. You'd be up there. Yeah. <laughs> if I would have yeah. tripped and fell, could I have sued you? Could I, could I have got on the workers' comp? Probably. Thing? Guys have done worse. Guys have done worse. It's guys have claimed workman's comp for a lot wor- for for a lot less. That's for sure. <laughs> do you set your alarm in the morning, or do you just get up? Are you one of those dudes who just wakes up at three thirty? Uh, no, I do set my alarm. I'm not a good sleeper. Um, I don't sleep well. Um, I wake up multiple times during the night, so I do set alarm. I'm lucky. I've got a wife that is in the finance business, so she works market hours out here on the West Coast. So she needs to be in the office, you know, quite early. And she works on the other side of town. So we both leave here, you know, quarter to five, five o'clock in the morning type thing. I definitely am motivated to get to work every day. What time do you set your alarm? 10 past four. What's the, why not just four? Why not take an extra 10 minutes? <laughs> do you hit snooze? <laughs> I'll hit a, a timer three, yeah. A timer three, dude. I, I yeah. strategically like set my clock where I can. It's so stupid too, really, because I'll set it for seven, knowing I need to get up at seven thirty so I can hit snooze three times. Because I guess my snooze is set to like eight minutes, I think, which I, I haven't really figured it out. But yeah, um, so it doesn't make any sense. Why not just set it for seven twenty-five? But yeah, no, I uh, yeah, I, I certainly set an alarm, but I usually am always. My Starbucks opens up, you know, just a touch before five or coffee shop. I, whatever, whichever one I go to opens up right at five o'clock, grab my coffee a block or two away, you know, usually checking horses five 30 in the morning. All right. So I got, I got, uh, I got three things. I got three things to wrap it up. You get to pick the one you want. We'll save one for, for another time. Well, actually one of them you might not want. So first of all, JT wanted me to ask you why they call you baby Billy, Billy Mott, which I knew you probably didn't want to talk about but I needed to get that in baby Billy Mott. I don't know. That's a good question. Why do they, I know why they call him. I know why they call him baby O'Brien, <laughs> tiny Tessio. <laughs> I'm glad you got an opportunity to yeah. fire back. Okay. So you got two stories. You got two stories. You got, you got one to pick from. Okay. So you can tell the super saver cooling out story and skip the trainer name or you can tell the thunder chicken, the pony name, that story. That'll be our closing. That'll be our closing wrap. Whichever one you want to do. Which thunder chicken story? The the thunder chicken story where Jonathan almost got himself killed on thunder chicken, or the time where he ran off with me going the wrong way. Thunder well, chicken story. I think if we're talking thunder chicken, we probably have to at least touch on both. Thunder chicken was a rodeo pony that we had, uh, or an ex rodeo horse to as to barrel horse whatever um that we had used who was very fast he was really good at going forward and that was about it but jonathan thomas is a very accomplished rider rode steeplechase races galloped horses got on kittens joy has been on numerous numerous you know good horses, raised around horses, and a very good rider in his own right. Me, I just kind of 
picked it up from being around and I ride well enough to get it, get one around there, break, you know, break a worker off, pick a horse up, this kind of stuff, what have you. But I am certainly no, no Roy Rogers, I guess. Um, so I've been run off with a couple of times, but I got run off one winter at Belmont Park going the wrong way on this Thunder Chicken and was running into horses coming at me. Strangely enough, when I mentioned it to Jonathan, Jonathan had, had mentioned that <clears throat> I don't know exactly what happened, but somehow he under, ended up, I believe, underneath Thunder Chicken coming off of the racetrack and being dragged by Thunder Chicken. So I hope wherever Thunder Chicken is now, I hope he's happy. I hope he's healthy. As long as I'm arm's length away from him, don't have to sit on his back again, I'm good. But um, yeah, no. Yeah, Thunder Chicken, it was it, it kind of a running joke between Jonathan and myself. Um, although I have an excuse. I'm a bad rider, and Jonathan was a world-class rider, so he should know better. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember the first time that I saw you and JT together. Um, together. I mean, I, obviously, I knew JT before. I knew you before, but we, were, we went over to watch. I think we went over to watch that work you were talking about. City yeah. of Lights work. And the entire time you guys were going in on each other. And I mean like how brothers go in where at some point yeah. I was like, dang, they might fight. There's a, no, actually we were going to watch Catholic boy work. Actually. I was like, they might fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what? It's a, it's a, we have a good relationship there. Not only Jonathan Thomas, John Panagot, Aaron Wallman, Jacob West, you know, you've been around all of us. We're all around. I think it's almost like a it's it's a, it's almost like a pacifying kind of a thing when you're giving each other jabs and stuff. It takes the edge off, especially some around that time, Breeders' Cup time. You know, um, a lot of weight on Jonathan's shoulders with a horse like Catholic Boy. Um, myself running a handful of horses that day, but. The good-natured jabs are always there. Um, I expect them. Um, but I also know if I really need any of those guys, need Jonathan, anything I need, I know those guys would absolutely go and bat for me. So it's, it's, what, um, it's what makes our, you know, it's what makes any friendship unique, you know. When, when the chips are down and need, need somebody, you can count on them. That's, you know, that's all, that's all part of it. Um, but, yeah. I usually let Jonathan draw first blood, though. I try to go about my business and just keep to myself. But and here he comes. He, he needs to open one. his mouth. If he needs to open his mouth, I'm just the guy to shut it. So, yeah. Well, I won't. We won't talk about this story here. But I will tell you, if you run into to Michael out in the wild and and you catch him on a good day, you got to get him to tell you the rollerblading story at Belmont. We won't. We won't put that on paper, but. We'll... That's good. That's good. That's, that's a good story. That's my favorite story. I'll but, never forget that. I'm driving out Belmont Park and said, I think I'm going to like New York. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, I'm sorry. I feel so bad teasing people, but I'm telling you, we'll get canceled before the third episode. I can't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. This episode isn't, the ratings aren't going to be very high on this episode anyways. I'm a poor storyteller, but... You need to kind of add fuel. We get a little fuel into us. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll make sure it's really good. No, it's going to be a good one. All right. So the last thing I'll say is 
Um, and I've, I've said this on our podcast before, but you know, and, and I told, I told Tom Amos, I, I, uh, intoxicatedly made a wager with Craig Burnick that Serengeti Empress would never win another grade one. So I want to personally thank you for that. Um, and I want, well, there's to, still a few grade ones left. I've just, I just helped out. I just helped yeah, but I just cause. need, so my point is, is if you need help with the shipping costs, if I need to talk to the owner and design the race, whatever I have to do that CC continues to show up in the grade ones that Serengeti Empress does. Just let me know what I can do. You got it. You got it. Michael, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and, and I'm, and I'm honored to have you as a, as my second guest. I'm also honored and thankful to, to call you a friend. So congratulations on this weekend. I can't tell you how happy I was for you. And, and uh, I know I wasn't alone in that. No, I appreciate that. And the feeling is mutual. And I think we, yourself and then what you know you and peter fornitale do and you're bringing this stuff to the masses um i think it any kind of exposure we can get to the game uh is good exposure having you on fox i think that's a huge deal you know uh the way you break down your bets and stuff like that i think it's huge for people um that are just literally over the last couple of weeks during this quarantine or shut down or whatever you want to call it and people are starting to pay attention to horse racing and and you know need a little something to get some action on i couldn't think of a better guy to explain it to everybody so it's a feather in your cap too thanks man i really appreciate that but look here i gotta get this thing out i feel like people are tweeting and i feel bad i and uh i got some madden that i gotta play tonight i haven't played madden yet tonight i could probably have some ice cream i need to eat as well so Man, I'm, I'm super appreciative to uh, Michael McCarthy for spending this time with me. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the memories, for the stories. Uh, this is a huge reminder that I have to sit down with two, for two hours with, uh, with the legend that is Angel Cordero to tell some stories because he's, he's full of them and I got I to gotta get as many as I can get. Um, I want to thank everybody that Pete always thanks. Uh, our partners, our friends, you guys for listening. I want to thank Pete for plucking me from obscurity. Our business manager, Drew Coatney. Other people that do shows on the network. Matt Bernier, Naomi Tucker, Spencer, whose last name I can't say. And uh, I want to thank you guys again for listening. And and, and I hope you'll tune in next week. I, I, I'm going to keep going. I'm having fun with this. And, and hopefully we can continue to bring you guys interesting and fun stuff and educational stuff. If you have any ideas, hit us up on Twitter, at UTBigHair, at LoomsBoldly. And, uh, yeah, the other people, Matt's is like hard. It's like underscore Matt and Spencer's. I don't, it's I, who knows. And just Google Naomi. Um, and drew he's on, he's on Twitter too. So anyways, thank you guys so much for hanging out. Oh my God. I forgot what my, what my sign out. Oh, I think I remember it. Oh damn. I don't remember it. It's, uh, you know what? It's a work in progress. See you guys I need week. to know everything. Who in the what and the where? I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk. So I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet.